Amen. Thank you, Sam, for leading us in worship through song this morning. You wouldn't even uh, know this, but late last night, Sam received a call from Luke. Luke was supposed to be leading this morning and had to stay home with his family who's sick this morning. So he told Sam, you're on. And Sam got a set list, got a band, got everything ready to go and did it excellently. Thank you, Sam, for leading us in worship through song this morning. What a glorious Lord's Day. What a magnificent day to gather and to rejoice in the gospel. As you came in, you probably saw those little communion element cups on your table. just want to remind you, as we are about to spend time in God's word, we will be partaking of communion together at the end of our service. And it will be the, the high point of the service where we get to be satisfied in everything that God has done for us in Jesus Christ. Uh, this is for believers only. Communion is not for unbelievers. It really wouldn't make sense for unbelievers because it's celebrating. Communion is celebrating the work that Jesus did on the cross in our place and rejoicing in his finished work, not our own righteous merit to get us to heaven. And so for a non-believer who is still trusting in their own works or just doesn't think that they're really that bad, it just won't make sense. And the Bible actually says if you eat and drink communion as a non-believer or a believer who is living in willful rebellious sin, you are eating and drinking judgment upon yourself. So we just encourage you to not partake of communion at the end if you are not a believer in Jesus Christ and if you are a believer but just living currently in rebellion against God. But my prayer is that maybe as you hear that this morning, and you say, okay, I'm just going to let the elements pass. My prayer is that by the end of our time this morning, you would partake because either you will get saved and trust in Jesus Christ as his Holy Spirit opens your eyes to see your need for Jesus and the beauty of our Savior, or you will turn from sin, trust in Christ, and cling to him ever more closely than ever before loving him and cherishing him above that sin that you might be holding on to now. So I say that up front because I want to make sure that as we're going through this service together, we'd be preparing our hearts. What a magnificent celebration we get to have this morning. If you have your copy of God's word, take it and turn with me to Revelation chapter 12. Revelation chapter 12. Those of you who know me know that my uh, favorite holiday season is Christmas. Uh, my favorite holiday, if you want to call it a holiday, is uh, Good Friday and Resurrection Sunday. But my favorite season is Christmas. So much so that I have a little app on my Fitbit watch that is called Christmas Timer that counts down the days until Christmas. And just so you all know, you have 201 days to get your Christmas shopping done. And then it will be time to celebrate the birth of our Savior. So knowing that we have 201 days until Christmas... And knowing that that day is coming, and knowing things about that day changes the way that I live my life today. For instance, I have to budget money now for the gifts that I'm going to buy for my friends and family then, or else Christmas will break the bank. I don't know if you've ever been in that situation before where, hey, we've got to get Christmas gifts for our friends and family, and then all of a sudden, I have no money. How did I get so many friends and family? I don't know what to do. I need to budget. So knowing that that day is coming, I budget today. Also knowing that that day is coming, I want to game plan for how to put up the lights successfully without falling off of my house 
and while enjoying it. Like, I'm, I'm trying to think, how can I enjoy this process instead of hating every second of putting up the Christmas lights thinking I'm going to fall off to my impending death? I'm trying to figure out how to live now in light of that day that's coming. And we know that it's coming. But we know that that day is only one day. It's a season, yes, but Christmas is one day. What about eternity? The Bible tells me that every single one of you believes, at least knows, that there is something after death. Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 11 says that God has written eternity on your heart so that you know this life isn't all there is. You just don't know exactly what's going to happen next. So how are you planning to spend eternity? And how does knowing that eternity is coming impact the way that you live your life today? Well, I believe that John will help us answer that question by giving us three future realities that will change our lives today. Three future realities that will give us hope in the present They are found in verses 7 through 12. Let's read them together. Revelation chapter 12, verse 7. There was a war in heaven. Michael and his angels waging war with the dragon. The dragon and his angels waged war, and they were not strong enough. There was no longer a place found for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down. The serpent of old, who is called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. Then I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brethren has been thrown down, he who accuses them before our God day and night. And they overcame him because of the blood of the Lamb and because of the word of their testimony. And they did not love their life even when faced with death. For this reason rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to the earth and the sea, because the devil has come down to you, having great wrath, knowing that he has only a short time. Father, these words are clear. And I pray that as we read them, as we hear the meaning behind them, I pray that we would see their application today. That we would not just leave these events for the future without impacting us in the present. But God, there's no way we can make that happen on our own. There's no way we can take away from this text what we need to take away apart from your Holy Spirit. So we pray, Holy Spirit, as we pray every Lord's Day, open our eyes that we may behold wonderful things from your law. We're completely dependent upon you. And if you do not open our eyes and open our ears and soften our hearts, we will see without seeing, we will hear without hearing, and we will not receive the word of God implanted in our hearts. So be our teacher and tutor this morning and show us Christ. We pray in his name. Amen. Three profound future realities that give us hope today. Reality number one, evil will not last forever. Amen? Evil will not last forever. Verse seven, there was a war 
in heaven. There's a war. This is really a spiritual war and kind of a precursor to the physical war that's going to happen in the end times in the battle of Armageddon. It's a spiritual war that's going to culminate in a physical war. And Michael is one of the main players in this war. Michael and his angels are waging war with the dragon. Now, Michael is an archangel. We also have the name of one other archangel in the Bible. That would be Gabriel. Michael seems to be a rescuing angel. He seems to jump in at the last moment to rescue and to save. Uh, Daniel chapter 10 refers to him that way. Gabriel seems to be an announcing angel. You remember Luke chapter 2, he's the one that shows up and announces to Mary and to Joseph that the Messiah is going to be born. According to Jewish tradition, there are five other archangels. You can Google them on your own time. They have crazy awesome names. Not Michael and Gabriel, but these crazy awesome names. But we know that there are at least two in the Bible that we see, Michael and Gabriel. And again, we keep saying this every single Lord's Day as we've been studying Revelation, but it just needs to be said again. If you understand the Old Testament, Revelation will make complete sense to you. In fact, this war is prophesied all the way back in Daniel chapter 12. We don't have time to go there, but you can write it down. Daniel chapter 12, verses 1 through 2, speaks of a day when Michael will fight Satan to defend God's people. That's exactly what's happening here. So as John writes this down, John's uh, audience will absolutely understand, okay, that's what was prophesied in Daniel chapter 12. We know that Michael's going to do this. Revelation 12, Daniel 12, they fit right together. And by the way, this isn't the first rodeo that Michael has had with the devil. Jude verse 9 tells us that Michael fought the devil over Moses' body, which is really interesting. We don't know exactly why there was a fight over Moses' body. I would think that Satan wanted Moses' body so that Satan could do something with that body to idolize Moses in front of the Israelites. And so Michael said, no, that's not going to happen. God said, go, Michael, fight, take the body, defend the body. And so here, there's another war. It's not uncommon for Michael to be fighting the devil. Michael and his angels are waging war with the dragon. We know the dragon back earlier in the text, as we saw last week, is the devil. And it's going to say explicitly in verse 9 that the dragon is the devil. And the grammatical construction of this phrase is that the devil is the one who initiates the war with Michael and with the angels. Literally, it would be Michael and his angels had to fight off the dragon. They had to fight off the dragon. Satan goes to war with Michael and the angels. We don't know exactly why. There are a bunch of interpretations as to why. One very interesting one, this, this war is happening. We know that this war is happening in the end times. It's not happening now. So one interesting theory is that as the church is raptured out of this world, the devil and the demons try to take them away and keep them from going to heaven. And they follow them up into heaven and start fighting to take those souls back. The text doesn't say that. We don't know. That's an interesting interpretation. But whatever it is, Satan is very, very angry. And he's waging war against Michael, the angels in heaven, trying to accomplish a defeat of God and of righteousness. But verse 8 tells us they were not strong enough. If you underline in your Bibles, that is a... A phrase to underline. Evil is not strong enough to overcome Michael, the angels, the holy angels of our God and our God himself. So as they fought and they weren't strong enough, they were overpowered by Michael and by the angels and by God himself. 
And so they were thrown out. My Bible says there was no longer a place found for them in heaven. This is the beginning of the end for the devil. This is, as C.S. Lewis describes in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe with the white witch who is the characteristic uh, person of the devil. And the white witch has brought an eternal winter into Narnia. But when Aslan shows up, who is representative of Jesus Christ, winter starts dying, right? Spring starts to show up. The snow starts melting. That's what's happening here. Aslan is on the move, as it were. Evil's power is starting to be crushed and broken. And as C.S. Lewis writes of Aslan, wrong will be right when Aslan comes in sight. At the sound of his roar, sorrows will be no more. When he bears his teeth, winter meets its death. And when he shakes his mane, we shall have spring again. That's what's happening here. Evil will not last forever. There is coming a day when evil will be dead. It will die and it will cease to exist. Number two, the second future reality that we have here in the text is that Satan will be completely silenced. Satan will be completely silenced. This is verses 9 through 10. The great dragon was thrown down. The defeat results in Satan losing access to heaven. He's thrown down. Now, when was he thrown down? This is a sticky point of interpretation. Some people say he was thrown down at the very beginning, probably during the week of creation, when he fell. Yes, he did fall. Jesus said that in Luke chapter 10, verse 18. Jesus said, I was watching Satan fall from heaven like lightning. So Satan did fall, but he did not cease to have access to heaven when he fell from heaven. You remember the book of Job. Satan's going into heaven. So this can't be at the point of creation when Satan first fell. Some say this is at the cross, which, yes, Satan was silenced in a certain sense at the cross, but this is, uh, this is the end times. This isn't happening at the cross. This is a war that's happening at the end times. This is the war that's happening during that seven-year period, uh, the Daniel's 70th week, that time of tribulation. This is during that time, maybe at the very beginning, maybe in the middle, maybe somewhere around that point. We don't know for certain, but the devil is thrown out of heaven like a, a belligerent Dodger fan thrown out of Dodger Stadium, of which I've witnessed several of those happenings, right? You, you're, no, you're not allowed to stay here. You're no longer allowed here. You're kicked out. Two security guards come. They remove the individual. That's what's happening here. Satan no longer has access to heaven. My question is, why doesn't God do it right now? And I think the answer is based off of the timing. The moment that God does throw Satan out of heaven and no longer allow him access into heaven is the moment when that seven-year period starts. It's the moment when the end times begin. It's the moment when Satan will start to unleash his fury and his wrath on the world. And so God's waiting because once Satan's thrown out, that seven-year period begins and God desires no one to perish but all to repent. He's patient, waiting for all to come to repentance. He's pleading, he's wooing, even this morning, He's pleading with you, turn from sin, trust in the Savior, follow Christ. He's thrown out. Who is thrown out? Verse 9 identifies Satan in five different ways. He's the dragon, which we looked at last week. The great dragon, red dragon, bloodshed, slaughtering 
of the innocent. He hates life and he desires to take as many souls as possible with him to hell. He's also called, number two, the serpent of old. The serpent of old. That reminds us of Genesis chapter 3. He's the serpent of old. He's the serpent all the way back in Genesis chapter 3. Which, by the way, tells us that is a true historical account. That actually happened. That's not a fairy tale. That's not a fable. That really happened. He's the serpent of old. Why does John bring up this reference to Satan being the serpent? Because that was the very first time that Satan had any information to accuse humanity before God. They sinned, they did what was wrong, and he took that to God to say, see, they deserve to die, your plan has failed. He's the accuser of the brethren, and he started accusing in Genesis chapter 3. And now this is the bookend. As we will see later on in this paragraph, the accuser will be silenced. No more accusations before the throne. So that's why John sees he's the serpent of old, the first accusation and the last in Revelation chapter 12. He's also called the devil. The devil, that word diabolos. Two Greek words, dia and balo. Dia means through, balo means to throw. He wants to divide, just like a big, huge aisle here in the middle of our church. He wants to divide people. They're all unified, they're all brought together, and he wants to throw something between them, division between them to divide them. He does that through lying. He does that through deceit. John says in 1 John that if you lie, you are of your father, the devil. This is one of the ways that he gets the division to happen. We all lie. We're all born children of, of wrath, Ephesians 2, children of the devil. We're born that way. You don't have to be taught to lie. Have you ever noticed that with children? You don't have to teach them how to lie. There's an ability that they have with sin innate in their being. They just, they just do it naturally. And you can't you know, take them back to the hospital and say, this one's broken. It lies. I don't know what to do with this. Can you take it back and give me one that's not broken? The devil wants to divide. He's also called Satan, number four, Satan. Satan just means adversary, attacker, the one who wants to bring about division in a more specified, specific way. Satan attacks everything. He attacked marriage at the very beginning in the Garden of Eden. He attacks God's good design for men and women's roles. Remember, God made Adam first. Then later made Eve, God made Adam to be the leader and the one with the moral code and the head to be in charge of the family and to lead them in righteousness. And so who does Satan go after first? He wants to undermine God's authority and God's perfect design. So he goes after the woman first. And then God, once they fall into sin, God goes after the man. Where was your leadership? Where were you? Satan attacks life through abortion. Satan attacks your true joy and your true satisfaction through disobedience. He attacks everything. And then he accuses and he is our adversary. Number five, the fifth description, he deceives the whole world. He deceives the whole world. We're going to look at this again when we get to Revelation chapter 20. There will come a time during the millennial kingdom when God will take the devil and shut him up into an abyss where it specifically says he's no longer able to go around and deceive the nation. So that's why we take Revelation 20 literally. There is a literal kingdom, a thousand-year reign of Christ on the earth that is yet to come, because here 
The devil is deceiving the whole world. He is deceiving everyone. That's happening now. He, de- he wants to deceive you. And that's why you and me have to live our lives not by the lies of the devil, but by the truth of God's word. This fivefold description of the devil leads us to the beautiful reality that he's thrown out. He's thrown down to earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. No more access to heaven. No more access to God's throne. They can only do their work on the earth. And that leads someone in heaven. We don't know who, but someone in heaven, verse 10, with a loud voice says, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come because the accuser of our brethren has been thrown down. He who accuses them before our God day and night. I don't know who this person is who starts this, but I want to meet this person because this person seems like a very kindred spirit to myself, where if something amazing happens, you just have to say, that's awesome. That's so amazing. I've had conversations with some of you that say, are you ever sad? Are you ever depressed? Are you ever down? Everything just seems awesome to you. Well, this guy, at the sight of Satan being thrown down and the angels being thrown down, this guy cannot keep silent. He cannot contain himself. And he cries out, salvation has come because of the authority of Christ on display. The devil's been kicked out of heaven. Notice his role. The devil's role is the accuser of the brethren. Every time you sin, the devil or a demon or somebody attempts to go before God and tell God, hey, God, Patrick sinned again. And you said the wages of sin is death. Patrick's still alive. You're a liar, God. Patrick deserves to die. And every time the accusation is brought before our God, Jesus Christ, our Savior, says, I died in Patrick's place. Look at my nail prints. Look at my scars. I took his death. I paid his penalty. So yes, you're right. He sinned. And yes, you're right. He deserves to die. I already died that death. And now leave. He accuses. Notice it says day and night. Remember the four living creatures consistently before the Lord. Day and night do not cease to praise God. Well, also day and night before the throne, the devil does not cease to accuse us. The devil's power was broken at the cross, but he still accuses. But one day, One day his mouth will be shut forever. Evil will not last. And the devil will not win. Our accuser will be silenced. Finally, number three, the third future reality is that believers will overcome and death will be gained. Believers will overcome and death will be gained. Verse 11 and verse 12, they overcame him because of the blood of the lamb and because of the word of their testimony, and they did not love their life even when faced with death. These are believers that are living during that seven-year period, which again, just gives us great hope and confidence that even in the worst of times, we're now probably in the back half of the seven years, the time that Jesus calls the great tribulation. This is a terrible time to be living, and yet people are still being saved. They're still standing up 
for Jesus Christ, and they overcome. They overcome. Remember that word when we studied Revelation 2 and 3, to the overcomer, uh, Greek word Nico, where we get uh, Nike from, the victor, the one who has won, the one who cannot be defeated. That's our fellow brothers and sisters during the time of great tribulation. That's also you and me right now. We overcome as well because of the blood of the Lamb. But notice our brothers and sisters during that time of great tribulation did not love their life even when faced with death. And it is going to be a time that will be facing believers with incredible death and torture and destruction consistently as the Antichrist is attacking every believer possible. They overcome by the blood of the Lamb, by the word of their testimony, and by the fact that they don't love their life alone. They love Christ. Even when faced with death, they know death is what they deserve. We know death is what we deserve, and we know that death is a penalty, but for believers, death is also a reward. We will finally, once death happens, receive our reward. I was just talking to a, a dear old saint this last week, and we were talking over the phone, and, and he told me that uh, he doesn't know how much time that he has left on earth. Uh, he really wants to get together. We want to get together and uh, talk about Christ and talk about um, our Savior. And he said, I don't know how much longer I have. And I said, I, I'm, I'm so sorry to hear that, and I hope we can get together soon, and I'll be praying for you. And he said, sorry to hear that. He said, I'm going home. I can't wait to get out of here and be with my Savior. This is how believers talk. We're crazy, right? Can we just admit believers are crazy? Most people look at their death and, and see death as loss. And it is. It's the loss of everything that you have in this life. But Paul says that I consider all that I have in this life, put it on one side of the scale and just put Jesus. Getting Jesus, getting heaven with Christ on the other side of the scale, he says death is gain. Lose everything in this life, gain Jesus in the next life, death is gain. Philippians 1, 21, to live is Christ and to die is gain. You love your life, yes, and you love what you have in your life, yes, but you're fine to let it go in your death because there's something better, much, much better after it. We had a very interesting leadership meeting a few uh, Tuesdays ago where we met with our elders and our deacons, and we were just talking about favorite verses in the Bible, maybe what you would call like a life verse. My life verse is Philippians 1.21, to live is Christ, to die is gain. And we just went around, as we went around sharing our life verses, all of them had the same concept inside of them, all had the same exact truth. And the truth was living in light of eternity. Every single verse that was our favorite verses as a leadership team, they all had something about not living for now, but living for then. Something about eternity. Something about what's going to happen afterwards. I love that. It just encouraged my heart so much to know that our leadership cannot wait to be with Christ. We cannot wait to be with our Savior. We love him so much, and we want more of him, and we will get more of him when we get to heaven. If you love your life in this world and you do everything that you can to protect it, you are going to wish, as the Bible says, you had never been born. But if you're willing to lose your life here, you get eternal life. And then, by the way, you also get this life thrown in. You get both. If you want this life so badly and you cling to it and you live for it, you not only don't get this life, but you lose the next life. 
if you say, I'm fine to lose my life in this life, you not only get the next life, but you also get this life thrown in. Even in the worst portion of the tribulation, people are still getting saved, and they overcome because Jesus is better than even life itself. Verse 12, for this reason, rejoice, O heavens. Rejoice, you who dwell in them. Rejoice, O angels. Rejoice, O saints. Rejoice, believers. But, woe, cursed are those on the earth and those in the sea, because the devil has now come down to you. He has no more access to heaven, so he's not going to be going back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. He's stuck now on earth. And it says he has great wrath. There's a few different words in Greek to talk about wrath or anger. This is the harshest word with the most emotion behind it, with the least amount of reasonableness. He's so angry. And he just wants to kill everything. Why? Because he knows that he only has a short time. If this is occurring at the beginning of Daniel's 70th week, this, he only has seven more years. If this is occurring in the midpoint, he only has three and a half more years. If this is occurring even after the midpoint, he only has three years, two and a half years, two years. He only has a short amount of time left. And so he is angry. But because of the blood's lamb, or because of the lamb's blood, because of the blood of the lamb, we have an answer for the wrath that Satan has against us, for the accusation he makes against us. And we have motivation for living in the present today. So those three future realities. Now what I want to do is I want to go back and I want to ask the question, so what? We know that this text is clearly teaching those three things are going to happen. Evil is going to lose. Satan's accusations will die. He will be silenced. And believers will overcome even at their death, even in the moment of dying. They know death is gain. So what does that mean for us today? We know that's what the text says and what the text means. Now what does that meaning mean for us today? Well, just briefly, point number one and three. Number one, since evil is going to lose, don't be afraid of it today. There's massive amounts of evil going on in the world around us, even in our community. You don't have to fear. It will not ultimately win. It sure looks like it's winning sometimes, but it won't ultimately win. There is an expiration date on evil. So don't be afraid. Live fearlessly. Number three, since death is gain... Live for what matters. Live for eternity. Since we know we're all going to die and we want death to be gained and not lost, live for that which cannot be taken away when you do die. That's the only reason we can say death is gain. When I die, I will lose everything in this life, but the one thing that I love the most, namely Jesus Christ, I will never lose. In fact, I get more of him when I die. If you do not live for Christ, then death is incredible loss because you lose everything and then in the next life, you don't get anything except for future judgment. So, evil's going to lose. We will overcome, and death is gain. But point number two, Satan is going to be completely silenced. How does that impact us today? We can live in peace, knowing that his accusations will never stand. The accuser of the brethren one day will be shut up because today his accusations are futile because of the work that Jesus did at the cross. 
Can I ask you a question? What do you believe Jesus is doing right now, at this present moment? What is Jesus doing right now? We know the Bible says he's at the right hand of the Father. He's in heaven. But what is he doing in heaven? He's doing two things. The Bible explicitly teaches us he's doing two things. He's interceding for you and me. And he is being our advocate before the Father. Turn to Hebrews chapter 7. I want to look at these two realities of what Jesus is doing right now. Hebrews chapter 7, verse 25. Let's start with his intercessory work. He is our intercessor. He intercedes for us. Hebrews chapter 7, verse 25. Therefore, Jesus is able also to save forever those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. He's able to save forever. Some of your translations might, save to, might say, save to the uttermost. My question is, why does Jesus need to intercede at all? Why does he need to intercede at all? Weren't we justified at the cross? Weren't we declared righteous once and for all at the cross? The answer is yes, we were, but Christ's intercessory work applies what the atonement accomplished on our behalf. His intercessory work is a constant hitting of the refresh button on our justification in the court of heaven. And he's able to save forever, or your translation, to the uttermost. might say to the uttermost. The only other place where that Greek word is used in the New Testament is Luke chapter 13, verse 11, where it describes a woman who couldn't stand up straight all the way to the uttermost because she had been disabled for 18 years. All the way. That's the idea of this word. That's why my Bible says forever. All the way into eternity, to the uttermost into eternity. Jesus will never let us down. We are to the utmost sinners. And that's why we need a to the utmost Savior. Notice he doesn't just help us. Therefore, he is able also to help forever. He doesn't just help. He saves. He saves. Our presence in God's good favor and being a part of his family will never, ever sputter out like a car's engine slowly dying because you didn't put gas into your car. We can never sin our way out of God's tender care. He never ceases to intercede for us. He never ceases to bring his life, his death, and his resurrection before the Father, praying on our behalf. John Calvin said it this way, Christ turns the Father's eyes to his own righteousness to avert his gaze from our sins. He so reconciles the Father's heart to us that by his intercession he prepares a way and access for us to the Father's throne. He doesn't just forgive us at the cross and then just hope we make it the rest of the way. Like, hey, I forgave you, now you do your thing. No, he says, I forgave you, and I'm going to get you the rest of the way there. It's like if somebody paid a million-dollar bail fee. They pay the fee, they're not going to then forget about you and not drive to go pick you up and take you home. Jesus paid the greatest cost possible to free us, and therefore he is going to bring us safely home. Burkhoff says it this way, it is a consoling thought 
that Christ is praying for you even when you are negligent in your own prayer life. I love that. So what is Jesus doing right now? He's praying right now, and he's praying for you right now. Can you imagine what would it be like to hear your Savior praying for you, to hear his words, to hear his heart, to hear what he's praying for versus what you and I tend to be praying for? I think few things would calm our hearts more deeply than to hear and pray for us. Well, we know that he's praying for us. Richard Sibbs, an old Puritan, said, what a comfort it is now in our daily approach to God to minister boldness to us in all of our suits that we go to God in the name of the one that he loves, in whom his soul delights. We have a friend in court. We have a friend in heaven for us that is at the right hand of God and interposes himself there for us in all of our suits that makes us acceptable, the perfumes that our prayers, he perfumes our prayers and makes them acceptable before the Father. Be sure, therefore, in all of our suits to God to take along our elder brother. God looks upon us, lovely in him, and delights in us as we are members of him. Our sinning goes to the uttermost, but his saving goes to the uttermost. And his saving always, always, always outpaces and overwhelms our sinning because he's always interceding for you and for me. But he's not just interceding. There's another work that the Bible describes that we already read in 1 John chapter 2 that Jesus is doing right now. Not only is he praying for you, but he's also, number two, being your advocate. Turn to 1 John. 1 John chapter 2. He is being our advocate. He's praying for us, yes, but he's also being our advocate. Let's start in chapter 1, verse 8. If we say that we have no sin, we're deceiving ourselves. The truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we've not sinned, we make him a liar. His word's not in us. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. That's the goal but none of us could ever attain that in this life. So if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Satan accuses us, but we have a defense lawyer, and he is the best in the business. We have an advocate. That's why Paul says in Romans chapter 8, verses 33 through 34, who can bring a charge against God's elect? My answer is lots of people, right? Lots of people can bring a charge. The question is, who can successfully bring a charge against God's elect? The answer to that is no one, because it is God who is redeemed. It is God who justifies. It is God who glorifies. So as we sin, our advocate stands in our place, defends us before the Father. Notice our appeal in 1 John chapter 2 is to the death of our defense lawyer. It's a very interesting tactic, right? I would like to bring my defense lawyer here before you. Uh, he's dead. And the reality is, but he's dead no more. And he ever lives to intercede for you and to plead his blood on your behalf. It's like Satan is talking on a TV screen and God just presses mute 
on everything that Satan's saying. Everything that the devil brings before the Father, in the case of a believer, Christ says, I've already paid the price. Yes, Patrick is guilty, but his punishment has already been paid. So intercessory work has the idea of mediating between two parties, bringing them together. Advocacy is similar, but it has the idea of aligning oneself with another. An intercessor stands between two parties, and an advocate doesn't simply stand in between the two parties, but steps over and joins that party as he approaches the other. Christ makes himself one with us. Galatians chapter 2.20, we've been crucified with him. So it's no longer us who live, but Christ who lives in us. John says, if anyone sins, which is our constant reality, we're always sinning, we have an advocate with the Father. That word advocate, you probably know that word in Greek, parakletos, paraclete, helper. The Holy Spirit, this word is used five times in the New Testament, four times it's used of the Holy Spirit in the upper room discourse, John chapter 13 through 17. The only other time it's used is here. This is the fifth usage of that word. He's a helper. He's a comforter. He's one who stands in our place. And notice who this advocate is for. If anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father. Who's the advocate for? It's for anyone who wants him. It's for anyone who wants him. We, we have an advocate. Do you want him? It doesn't say we will have an advocate. It says we already have one. We already have one. And why can he help us? Why is he able to help us? At the end of verse 1, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the advocate, and he can help us because he is righteous, completely righteous. We sin, he never did. We always sin, he never does. And so he stands before the Father and says, I am Patrick's righteousness. I am the, the payment for his penalty, the punishment that he deserves fell on me, and I'm also his righteousness now. John Bunyan, an, another old Puritan, wrote a whole book on 1 John chapter 2, verse 1. Christ is our advocate. He says this, Christ as priest goes before, and Christ as advocate comes after. Christ as priest continually intercedes. Christ as advocate, in case of great transgression, pleads. Christ as priest has need to act always, but Christ as advocate sometimes only. Christ as priest acts in times of peace, but Christ as advocate in times of broils and turmoils and sharp contentions. Wherefore, Christ as advocate is, as I may call him, a reserve, and his time is then to arise, to stand up and to plead when his own are clothed with some filthy sin that of late they have fallen into. You know, Christ is waiting to do that for you. That's why he died. He died so that he could be your advocate. So it's not when you sin, Christ goes, man, again? When you sin, when I sin, Christ says, this is what I came to do. Now I can be the advocate. Now I can accomplish the work. He rises up to defend you. When his brothers and sisters fail and stumble, he is the advocate on their behalf. And he cannot bear to leave us alone to fend for ourselves. He loves to rise up and defend us. John Bunyan says, Satan had the first word, but Christ 
has the last. Satan must be speechless after a plea of our advocate because he defends us every moment that we in our sin are struggling. So we have an intercessor. We have an advocate. What kind of a Christian does this knowledge make? There's so many applications. Uh, Freedom in Christ, hatred for sin, love for Jesus. There's so many applications. But I want to just bring out one. And John Bunyan brings it out, and Dane Ortland brings it out in uh, a book that we studied a, a few months ago. What kind of Christian does this make? Knowing that we have an advocate, knowing that we have a defense lawyer. We as fallen human beings are natural self-advocates. We are self-exonerating, we are self-defending, we intuitively come up with reasons why what we did isn't really that bad. We minimize, we excuse, we explain away practically everything that we do. We advocate for ourselves, but knowing that we have an advocate standing for us in heaven at the right hand of the Father. What kind of Christian does this make? This makes a Christian who says, I don't need to defend myself. In fact, I can own all of my sin because I'm a failure. I am a sinner. I cannot be perfect, but I have someone who will defend me. I don't need to defend myself. What if we never needed to advocate for ourselves because we knew that someone else had already undertaken to do so? And what if that advocate knew exhaustively just how fallen you are and yet at the same time was able to make a better defense for you than you ever could for yourself? And we wouldn't be blame shifters. We wouldn't make excuses. We wouldn't be the way that we typically are. We would just be pointing consistently to his all-sufficient sacrifice, willingly admitting our sin and letting our defense lawyer take care of it. We'd be free, free from the need to defend ourselves. Just leave your case with Christ. John Bunyan said in the conclusion of his book, Christ gave for us the price of blood, but that's not all. Christ as captain has conquered death and the grave for us, but that's not all. Christ as priest intercedes for us in heaven, but that's not all. Sin is still in us and with us and mixes itself with whatever we do, whether what we do be religious or civil, for not only our prayers and our sermons, our hearings and our preaching, but our houses and our shops and our trades and our beds are all polluted with sin. Nor does the devil, our night and day adversary, forbear to tell our bad deeds to the Father, urging that we might forever be disinherited for this. What should we do now? If we had not an advocate, then yes. If we had not one who would plead, yes. If we had not one that could prevail and would faithfully execute that office for us, yes, we must die. But since we have been rescued by him, let us, as to ourselves, lay our hand upon our mouth and be silent. As Dane Ortland says, don't minimize your sin or excuse it away. Raise no defense. Simply take it to the one who is already at the right hand of the Father, advocating for you on the basis of his own wounds. Let all your unrighteousness and all your darkness and despair drive you to Jesus Christ, the righteous, in all of his brightness and in all of his sufficiency. 
we can embrace all of the accusations that the devil makes against us because we know we have a defense lawyer who stands there ready to defend us before the Father. Back to that courtroom analogy. How would you plead? You're standing before the judge. How do you plead in this life? Guilty or not guilty? I, I hope that you would plead guilty. I hope all of us would plead guilty. Jesus is not a defense attorney for people who do not plead guilty. If you decide, I'm not that guilty, then you have no defense lawyer but yourself. And you will stand before God on judgment day to give an account for yourself. You will be your own advocate. But Jesus died for the guilty. So if you would just simply say, well, I plead guilty. I plead guilty. Then you have an advocate. As your accuser would say, this man deserves to die. This woman deserves to die. Look at what they've done. And he can stand boldly and say, allow me to call my defense attorney. And he will plead his finished work on the cross and his resurrection from the dead on your behalf. Father, we thank you so much for your amazing grace. As we have seen this morning in Revelation 12, we know that there are future realities that are coming. But those future realities apply to us today. We know that evil will be done. There's a day coming when it will not exist. We also know that death is gain for believers. And we will overcome despite all the obstacles against us. But we also know that our accuser is about to be silenced forever. And we know that his power has already been broken, and we know that we have an advocate standing before the Father. So Jesus, as we prepare our hearts to celebrate your death and your resurrection, to celebrate your body and your blood through communion, Jesus, I pray that you would remind our hearts, even as we contemplate, as we sit and we listen to the song, as we listen to the words, as we meditate on what they are preaching to us, and everything that this service has been about. Jesus, I pray that you'd be glorified. As we see you, as we savor you, as we know that you are our advocate. And you plead our cause before the Father. Father, as we meditate now, as we listen to this song, I pray that you would encourage our hearts to not defend ourselves, but to leave it to you. Pray in your name. Amen.